our scripture reading will be coming from uh, Ephesians 4, 17 through 5, 2. And that can be found on page 978 in the Pew Bible. If you do not own one, feel free to take one as a gift from us. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every, of every kind, every kind of impurity, excuse me. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard him and were taught in him as the truth in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, do an honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits for the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Michelle. Well, good morning and welcome to the Brookside campus. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm the campus pastor here. And thanks, Alex and Michelle, for welcoming us and greeting us this morning. Um, before we embark on this uh, passage of Scripture together that Michelle read for us, I'd love to um, take a moment just to highlight a couple of things that we uh, have available for families during um, the service, during the, the sermon time. Um, we produce every week uh, the Kid Connect, which is um, based on the sermon. So Anna Lynn, our children's ministry uh, director, pastor, uh, soon to be, will um, creates these based on my messages uh, or whoever's preaching. And so if you have a, a student or child who's a part of the service, would love to have this um, be a part, um, as well as activities that are based on the text of Scripture for, for younger kids too. So we really value intergenerational worship. We really desire f- for families to be able to worship together. So we have children's programming on Sunday mornings, but they're also always welcome to be here with you throughout the whole service, um, or even part of the service. Um, So if you are here and you're a child student, we have those available. Um, Also, during this time when community groups are running, we also produce conversation starters, which are, again, based on the message, uh, the passage of Scripture, the sermon that's being preached each week. And so whether you're in a community group discussing those or not, um, those are available um, and, and it can be a good guide even just to reflecting on the message or um, doing that with your family. So those are just a couple of resources that are there for you to be able to engage both uh, in the service on a Sunday morning as well as beyond uh, throughout the week. So I'd love to begin our time now by praying and asking that God would help us as we study His Word together. So God, open our hearts and minds by the power of Your Holy Spirit that as we read these scriptures and as your word is proclaimed, we may hear what you are saying to us today. Amen. 
Well, we use the language of hope a lot. Um, we talk about uh, hope, like I, I, I just said earlier uh, today, I hope this is the end of, of the hot weather, that this is kind of the last, last week of that. Or, or I hope, if maybe if you're a student, you're already starting to think about this, I hope we get a lot of snow days uh, this year. Or, or I hope I don't get sick. Or I hope that the economy grows. And, and in this sense, hope is really, it's, it's just a synonym for, for wishing or wanting, right? I, I wish that the hot weather would be over. I, I want a lot of days off school because of the snow. I, I don't want to get sick. I want the economy to grow. And, and this is fine. I mean, that's a great use of the word hope. It's how we actually use it most. But as we've been talking about hope here in the book of Ephesians over the last few weeks, this is not the kind of hope that we're talking about. We're not just talking about something that's a, that's a wish or a desire, a want. We're talking about something radically different. And this week, I, I was reminded of this as I went back and, and I read through or watched again the, the final outs of the American League Championship Game 6 against the Toronto Blue Jays, the Royals and the Blue Jays. you remember this last year? This is the game the Royals go to the World Series. Do you remember that game? The, the, the Royals, Mickey remembers, the Royals are, are they're leading 4-3. It's about to go into the ninth inning, and then the rain starts pouring down. You remember this? Wade Davis had just gotten warmed up. Our lights out closer, and the rain comes, and the game is delayed. And it's a long delayed. It's like, what's going to happen? Are they going to bring Davis back on? Is he going to be able to stay warm? Is he going to be too tired? They bring him back on. And he gives up a hit. You remember this? So there's the tying run is on. Nobody out. And then, well, just take a look. You remember that? <laughs> right? Now, as you watch that, Right? Like, how different is it watching that moment today than it was when it was happening? Because, I mean, I remember, I was like George Brett. I could not breathe as I watched those final pitches from White Davis. But now, it's all the anticipation, but none of the worry. Because we know how the story ends, right? We win that game. We go on to win the World Series. That's the kind of hope that we have, a hope that knows how the story ends ends. And it radically changes how you experience what's happening when you know what the story ends with. That's the kind of hope that we've been talking about. That's the kind of hope that's here, that, that resides in this thing, this organism, this entity, this, this living thing called the local church. A hope that knows how the story ends. You see, biblical hope is a confidence in something beyond us, a faith that God is still in control, that it, it's, it rests not on luck or blind courage or ability to make it okay. And it's a hope that knows how the story ends. Real hope, it knows how the game ends. And that kind of hope, it, it changes everything. And as we've been in Ephesians these last two weeks, we've seen that the local church is the place where in God's design this kind of hope resides, where it lives, where it radiates from. There's hope here. There's, there's hope for me, for my fears, for my failures, for my brokenness. We saw last week that there's hope for us, hope for Anna's, hope for unity. That the church is the one place where anybody can become family. 
And this week we're going to see that there's hope for all. Not not just hope for me, not just hope for, for us, but hope for all. The local church as God designed it isn't just about me or even just about us together. It's about extending hope for all, for people who haven't heard yet, for people who aren't here yet, because hope, it changes everything. Hope changes everything, that's, but that's only true if you and I are actually transformed by it, if we are actually changed by it. If we haven't been transformed, there's no way that we can bear witness to the hope for our world that is in the gospel and a people made new. But as we look at these words this morning, we're going to see that hope makes us new. We're going to see that hope makes us strange in all the right ways. And hope makes us love. Hope makes us new. Hope makes us strange. And hope makes us love. So first of all, hope makes us new. And this is what we've been looking at all through Ephesians. Uh, The gospel actually makes us into new people. We were dead. That was Paul's point in the first part of chapter 2. We spent a lot of time looking at we were dead, but now in Christ we've been made alive. Brand new. Uh, Paul puts it this way. He, he reminds us and the Ephesians who, who we were. We, we were alienated from God. We were callous. We were slaves to our desires. We were greedy. All those things were true of us. And then he writes this, but that's not the way that you learned Christ assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, Paul doesn't want us to miss this. The the Ephesians' problem and our problem isn't first and foremost that we were so immoral or that we were so irreligious. No, our biggest problem is that we were dead. And that was Ephesians chapter 2, that we were spiritually dead, completely cut off. The hope of the world is not people who are just a little more moral or just a little more religious. That's not the hope of the world. The hope of the world is people who have been made new, dead people who have been made alive, who have shed the old way of life and in faith embraced a new self created after the likeness of God. So have we been made new? You see, there's a difference between being made new and just making yourself better. There's a difference between being made new and just making yourself a little better. And that difference makes all the difference when it comes to living out this strange new life that Paul is going to describe for us in the coming verses. Because if you try to live out the kind of life that that Paul paints for us in Ephesians chapter 4, a life of sacrifice, of forgiveness, of love, of speech that builds up, of holiness and righteousness, if you try to live out that life, while you're still dead, you may look good, but you'll have no hope. You may look good, but you'll have no hope. The the great Welsh preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he compares this to being an artificial plant. You can try 
to obey. You can try to transform yourself without actually being alive, but in the end, all you are is an artificial plant. Now, Rachel helped me def- decorate my, my office, and, and she got me some of these artificial succulents that look like this. They're kind of scattered around my bookcases. She knew I, there was no chance of me keeping anything alive in there, and so she just skipped anything living and bought me these artificial plants. And they're just a nice little, nice little plant. I, it's green. It's great. I haven't watered it in years. Um, it looks great. I've never watered it, actually. It's artificial. Now, this is a plant I brought from, from home. It's a, it's a real live succulent, but it, this thing's struggling. I don't know how you can see this, but it's not, it's not great. He's, he's wrestling a little bit here. He's kind of fallen out of his pot. He's kind of withered in some places. So, I mean, which looks better? The artificial plant or this, this living plant? I mean, the artificial plant looks better, right? But it's dead. This thing is not alive. And even though this little guy here, he's, he's struggling, clearly, but he's alive, and that makes all the difference, right? If you're trying to live the Christian life without being made alive, you are just a nice artificial plant. You may be nice to look at, but you are utterly dead and hopeless, On the other hand, though, and this should bring you great encouragement, if you've been alive in Christ, no matter how much you're struggling, no matter how slow your progress and growth may be, no matter how wilty you may look, you are alive. You're alive. And unlike this plant, you will never die. Because this guy, I don't know how long he's going to make it, but if you've been made alive in Christ, that's where the analogy kind of stops. (laughs) If you've been made alive in Christ, your destiny is that you will one day be made fully alive, no matter how much you're struggling. So the question is, have you been made new, or are you just trying harder to keep the dust off and to keep a little paint on an artificial plant that's dead? And if we have been made new, are we leaning toward the sun, <laughs> making every effort to grow, to, to put off the old and to put on the new? You see, hope, it changes everything. And this kind of hope that changes everything, it makes us strange. And people of hope, new people are strange. Because you see, despair is normal. Hope is strange. I think we feel that around us, don't we? That, that hope feels out of place. It's a lot easier. Just the norm, the baseline is despair. And so Paul gives us a sketch in verses 25 through 32, just a few of the many ways that hope makes us as a people strange. It's not an exhaustive portrait. It's just a sketch. But what jumps out in these next verses is that because of hope, this new way of being human, we use words that build and work that serves. Words that build and work that serves. Listen to what Paul writes here about words that build. He says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. 
Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. And this idea of words that build, words that true, that are true. Those are, those are strange words today, aren't they? Is that much more common are words that tear down, words that are false, words that confuse, but words that build, words that are true, words that encourage, words that will build up, they're strange. I, I know this all too well in my own life. Today is Rachel's and my sixth anniversary, and over the course of those six years, six years I, I have said hurtful things I could have never imagined saying on a first date. Kind of proximity and closeness of a relationship that happens, right? And families, people who are closest to, we often say the most hurtful things to you. Words that tear down are a lot easier than words that build up. And with the advent of social media, it's easier than ever to abuse the power of words, isn't it? For us as, as individuals, people running for office, I, I was struck by this article in The Economist. It was called... Um, the cover was The Art of the Lie, and it just it was so in the, post, the post-truth politics in the age of social media, and it just talked about in this most recent election cycle how it's been so easy for candidates, their surrogates, for people, for groups just to post things online, whether or not they're true, and just let them take a life of their own on. And let me just tell you, though, it's, it's not just politicians who struggle with that, right? I mean, all of us, I think, wrestle as we post things online. Even if they're maybe true, that just to post things in such a way or to say things in such a way online that we would never say to someone in real life. They were sitting right in front of us. I'd like, I mean, I'm, I'm friends with a lot of you on Facebook. I see the things that we're posting, right? Some of it's great, and some of it's not always great. We have to be careful. We, because hope changes everything. It even changes your Facebook feed. changes your Twitter feed. How we relate to one another, what we say. Is it kind? Is it tender-hearted? communicated with a a heart that knows what it is to forgive because you've been forgiven by Christ. You see, we are in a cultural moment where we are in a desert of anger and bitterness and lies. And so when someone speaks truthfully, kindly, at just the right moment, it's an oasis. Yes, it is strange, but it's strange like a pool of cool water is strange in the midst of a desert. Second, hope transforms our work. Work that builds, work that serves. Paul writes, let the thief, this is verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. You see, in this one sentence, Paul shows how hope completely reframes our work. First, hope calls us to good, honest work. It's so easy to steal from one another. It's so easy to steal from one another, to have a mindset of scarcity. 
have a mindset of, I've got to get what's, what's mine, protect what's mine. And maybe that doesn't involve actually stealing physical objects from one another. We're not breaking into one another's homes and taking one another's stuff. But we can steal from one another by, by not working as hard as we have been called to in our, in our workplace or um, by taking shortcuts or not being generous with our, with our time and our energy and our, and our encouragement of other people. Right? I mean, this is, and, and sometimes it does involve actual stealing. Right? Wells Fargo has been in the news lately for hundreds of employees and opening accounts without customers' knowledge in order to make sales numbers. Paul calls us, the gospel calls us, hope transforms us into the kind of people who do good, honest, hard work. But it's not just that. Second, actually, hope reframes the purpose of our work. Because look at what Paul does. He makes our work about others, not about us. He doesn't say work hard so that you can be secure in retirement. He doesn't say work hard so you can have a bigger house or take a nicer vacation. Not, not that any of those things are bad. They aren't. Those are great things to, to do, to have as goals. But they aren't the goal. He says work hard so that what? Work hard so that what? So that you may have something to share with anyone in need. You see, God has designed us to live in a, such a strange way as a new people, in such a bizarre way that we, we actually live enough below our means that through our work we're not a, only able to provide for ourselves, but have margin, surplus, abundance to give, and to be generous. Wow. This is the picture of work that Paul paints for us. Working not just for self-fulfillment or self-advancement, but actually for the good of others. Because you see, the primary way that you and I, the primary way we love our neighbors is not through what we do here on Sunday morning, working with the kids downstairs or handing out welcome folders or working on parking. It's, it's not helping a neighbor or a friend move on, the, on a Saturday afternoon. Though those things are serving your neighbor, they are vitally important. But the primary place that we love our neighbor, it's in and through our work what we do most of our time, when you do your work well. Your neighbors, as well as those you do not know and people you may never meet, they're able to connect with products and services they need. They are made well when they're sick. Special needs children learn to read. Fires are put out. People are rescued. Diapers are changed. Elderly find joy. Companies are started. Jobs are created. Books are balanced. Taxes are paid. People are comforted. Addictions are broken. And yes, God does those things. But how does he get that stuff done in the world? Through your work so often. He uses you, salespeople, doctors and nurses, teachers, first responders, moms and dads, accountants, nursing home coordinators, entrepreneurs and CEOs, counselors and therapists. So labor, doing hard work, so that in and through your work, needs will be met. You see, your work really matters to God and to your neighbor. So what if our goal was to be strange in all the right ways? With our work, with our words, in everything. 
Strange in a good way. Strange like water in the desert. Strange like championship sports teams in Cleveland. There you go. Come on. Yeah. The world has plenty of normal people in it. But normal is killing us. But what if we, his people, his church, tried something different? What if we were strange in all the right kinds of ways? Recently, I, I listened to one of the best parenting talks that I've ever heard. I put it on the church Facebook page this morning so you can connect to it easily. Um, please listen to it. It's from Jen Wilkin. It's called Raising an Alien Child. And her whole point is that if you are a new person captivated by the hope in Christ, then our goal as parents is to raise kids who don't fit in, who love differently, who talk differently, who think differently, who work differently. But it's not just for kids, is it, right? If our goal in life is to fit in, to be the best version of everyone else, to be normal, then we've misunderstood hope. You're missing what Christ has called us to. The church ought to be a place where we become beautifully strange together. A place where we serve each other, put each other ahead of ourselves with humility and grace. A people who who welcome those who aren't like us, who love those who the world discards, passionate about people. What if that was us? But here's the thing in all this. This strangeness, this newness, it's not about us. It's not about us. It's about something much bigger. It's about Jesus and the hope that he offers. It's about becoming a place and a people where his presence dwells, where we are able to offer hope to the hopeless. Because hope changes everything. It even changes the way we love, which is really what we've been saying all these three weeks as we've looked at these texts in Ephesians, because look at how all of this culminates at the beginning of chapter 5. Paul's been building this, this to this in the letter, and he says, therefore, in verse 1 of, of chapter 5, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the root of love, that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Do you get that this morning? Jesus loves you, and he gave himself for you. So you have hope, a hope that changes everything. Hope that enables you to imitate God's love in the world as beloved children. One of the most amazing and terrifying things about being a parent is that your kids imitate you, isn't it? Right? I mean, Lucy, she pretends like she talks on the phone. She's almost three now all the time. And she sounds strikingly like Rachel and me when she's talking on her pretend phone, whatever it might be in the moment. She imitates us. She doesn't know anything else. You see, when we were made new, when we were made alive, we were adopted. We are now children, and we imitate our Father and Jesus, who is our true older brother, who loved us and gave himself for us. So one more question from this text. This really short series in Ephesians that we're wrapping up. 
wrestling with what is the big why of the local church. And that is, what if we were this people? What if we were people of hope? Collectively here, individually, his body, everywhere we go. Not not just theoretically, but practically here. You and me, what would it look like to do that together? What would your family look like? What would your work look like? What What would our city look like? For the marginalized, the oppressed, what would it mean for the world? It would mean hope. Hope for me, hope for us, hope for all. Because the church, by definition, is a group of people who give themselves away for the sake of others. And I know that churches tend to turn inward, to only exist for themselves. We have to fight that, because I don't want to be a church that just exists for the good of us. I don't think that you do either. I want to be a part of an institution that exists for hope, even when it hurts. And so maybe, you know, we've been talking a lot over these last few weeks about this thing called Reach KC and, and expanding our Olathe facilities and getting land for a Shawnee facility someday. And maybe you've been wondering, okay, how does that fit with this? How is doing that work not turning in? I mean, do we really need to build an Olathe, really buy land in Shawnee Mission? All that time, all that money, all that energy, I, I get it, because we've wrestle with that as leaders. And yet I'm, I'm struck that here today on this fourth anniversary of the launch of the Brookside campus, today we're four years old. Happy birthday to us. We're potty trained, we're doing two services. Look at us, we're just growing up. But I'm struck that over four years ago, people at Leewood and Olathe and downtown, they gave themselves away so that we could move into this building debt-free with an incredible team of leaders and servants ready to be a place and a people of hope for here. They stepped out in faith so that many of you who have come since that first day four years ago would have a place to call home. How many of you came? How many of you were not here on that first day? You've come since that first day. A lot of us have come and been a part since that day one. Because a group of people said, we want to have a place in Brookside. And that's what Reach KC is all about, making room for people and places of hope in other parts of our city. We're all in this together. And there's hope here. And hope changes everything. Let's watch. Before coming to Christ, I I was absent uh, of of an identity. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know why I was. My life was lived with this hollow emptiness within my soul, within my heart. And I tried to fill that with gangs and and sense of identity and family. And so uh, I had the Harley. I I, I carried my my pistol, my gun. Uh, I dealt in drugs and I did drugs. And... Uh, my life was spiraling out of control, out of control, out of control. I had destroyed my family. I had destroyed my friendships and every relationship that I had. Uh, I sought to hurt the people involved. God led me to a, a gondola uh, on Beaver Creek uh, Resort where I met a guy 
who I don't want to call a guy, I think he was an angel who came to me and preached the gospel message to me for the very first time in my whole life and I was 26 years old. And I wanted him to keep his mouth shut and, and, and leave me alone. But he kept yapping and yapping, yapping, and then the words caught me and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jeff, the hope for your life. I didn't surrender my life right then and there. I didn't have a come to Jesus moment. I didn't have that Damascus Road experience, but I walked away from that day knowing that I wanted to go on a, on a search for it. I went on these other journeys and, and everything was meaningless. There was no hope in it. There was loss and rejection and pain until eventually I said, forget it all. I'm done. I was done with life. I was done with the misery they left behind. I hurt a lot of people. I've got a lot of destruction in my, in my past, uh, uh, damaged uh, relationships and, and people that uh, our lives are forever changed because of my criminal activity. And I couldn't live with the pain of that, the hopelessness of it. There, there was no answer. There's no answer for redemption or restoration there was nothing there and I was hollow I was hollow inside and I couldn't live with the fact that I hurt people and I hurt them really bad and why I did it there was no hope for me and so I found my dad's gun key and I unlocked it and when I loaded the gun up and I plotted it out in my head and I was standing there looking in a mirror this is it. I don't have to live with it anymore. I don't have to go through it. I don't have to think about it every day of why I did what I did and who I did it to. I could just be done. So I had the gun propped up against the wall and I stared in that bathroom mirror when I heard these tiny little footsteps come through the house of my mom's house. And my mom had ran some daycare, so she, she had a lot of little kids that would run around. And I'm a big kid myself and I refused to grow up. So the kids love me. Uh, and uh, she come running through that house and she stopped dead in her tracks and she hadn't seen me in a year. She was seven at the time and she had two front teeth missing. She looked right up at me and she looked me dead in the face and she said, Jeff, do you want a color? <laughs> and I said, absolutely, I want a color. That's when the Holy Spirit hit me. That's when my life changed. And that guy on a gondola who told me about that gospel message of hope and restoration and healing and redemption and forgiveness and all these words that I knew nothing about, suddenly they made sense in this act of this little seven-year-old girl who just wanted to be with me. And, and I knew that that's who the Savior was. He said, come to me, you who are weary and, and burdened, heavy laden, and, and I'm going to give you rest, Jeff, and I'm going to forgive you. This hope is for me, this hope of, of, of renewal, of restoration, of change, of, of uh, hope in a Savior. It's for me, and thank goodness, thank goodness. But it's also about us, and the hope that is for us is that I'm not alone in it. I have brothers and sisters, a family of believers, all striving for that same goal, all striving for that same hope, and then we uh, as a people together can be that hope for the world because the church is the hope of the world. And Christ's community reminds me each and every day that I'm in it 
with a family.